0: If you brought a copy of God's Word, you can find Philippians chapter 1 as we begin our study in earnest this morning. Philippians uh, chapter 1, the joyful life. I received an email recently that I did not open because I knew I would have to brace myself before I read it. It was from one of those curmudgeon type of people that are always complaining, always whining judgmental, accusatory, ungodly. I rather like the communication of those individuals that you can't wait to open, you know. Not that they don't have a hard word once in a while, but they usually, there's usually some form of edification and joy that comes out of the communication. Well, welcome to Philippians. That's the kind of letter this one is. The letter is convicting in the way hanging out with someone whose life so reflects Jesus uh, that it's convicting. It sort of leaves you realizing there are certain things in your own life that are lacking. It's that kind of convicting. I asked you a few weeks ago when we started this series, how would you describe your heart? Do you remember that? Uh, So today you're going to get to see Paul in his own self-description of his heart. As he opens up the letter to the Philippians, and without further ado, the first eight verses go like this. Paul and Timothy, servants, literally slaves, doulas, slaves of Christ Jesus, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now, depending on your tradition, I have a, I, I grew up as a, as a Catholic boy and I was taught that saints were those individuals who had already died and they'd had to, you had to prove that they'd had a couple of miracles or whatever, and then they would, they would be made or canonized as saints but the bible doesn't reflect that he's talking to real living people here the the greek word hagias means to be to be set apart everyone who has a genuine relationship with jesus has been set apart for him in fact the word the essence of the word means to be different and so when god changes our hearts he makes us different right that's the different ones he's writing to not not weird just different to all the Hagias, the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. That would be the pastors and the, the, the selected servants of the church. And then a very classic kind of introduction that every, even pagan letters would uh, invoke their own personal God at the beginning of their letters. Paul does that too, but he tells us who is God is, the God of gods and the God of Jesus Christ, when he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now into the substance of the letter. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. Because of your koinonia, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work In you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers, there's that word koinonia again, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, for God is my witness How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So in his opening words to this church, Paul reveals his true heart for them. And now he's going to challenge you and me about our hearts. Now here's the first question. Do you have a grateful heart? Because Paul certainly did. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of my making, my prayer with joy. The word thank here is in the present tense, so he's constantly thanking God for them. And look at these words that follow, all, always, every, all. These are, a friend of mine calls these 100% words. He uses this term whenever he's counseling a husband and a wife who, the wife says, you never do this, and the husband says, well, you always do this. And nobody ever, never, and always does anything, right? Except Paul was ever and always grateful for the Philippian church. And this is a church that had its own issues. This wasn't a perfect church. They had issues. There was some infighting going on. There was ungodliness and worldliness creeping in. You got a couple of women in chapter 4 that are fighting with one another. It wasn't a perfect church. And yet Paul said, every time I think about you, every single time, it, my heart wells up with gratitude. What kind of, what kind of people do you, do you talk like this to? I mean, I pray for a lot of people, but I don't always pray for them with joy. And he says, I'm doing this with joy. I mean, I can, I can guarantee you, Paul didn't write like this when he wrote to the Galatians or the Corinthians. So where did this gratitude of Paul's heart come from? And the answer is found in the text. Verse 5, it's the gospel because of your koinonia, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So it's the gospel, and more specifically, their fellowship in the gospel. This is a key word, if you recall, fellowship, koinonia, partnering, used several times in this epistle the word in the first century had commercial, even financial overtones. So if John and Steve bought a boat together, they, they went into koinonia, into fellowship together. It was a binding kind of a thing, just as it is in some ways today, only speaking of boats, by the way, my wife and I were on vacation during our sabbatical. We went to Mackinac Island. That's up in the northern part of Michigan, you got to take a boat there. There are no motorized vehicle. UPS even delivers on horse and carriage. And we got there, and there were, the place was packed because unbeknownst to us, we got there at the same time as the end of the yacht race, the great Chicago Yacht Club race to Mackinac Island. They do it every year. It's the, it's the longest annual freshwater race in the world. 333 miles of sailboats. 300 sailboats, rough waters, 50 of them didn't even make it. One guy died. This was a serious race. And we get there, and they're just starting, the boats are just coming in. People by the hundreds are just walking down to us. They're shooting off cannons, and they're talking, I mean, they're talking, they're, they're talking English, but uh, we don't speak of their language. They're talking words like jib and helm, and tacking, and slip, and healing. I mean, it was all English, but it made no sense to me. I mean, these people walking around with their Nautica t-shirts and all this stuff, and they were talking, and we were like the outsiders looking in. There was a fellowship, make no mistake, but we were not a part of it. And you may be here today, and you, you hear the language of the church, and it doesn't make any sense to you. And the Bible says the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. Have you ever read that? Uh, But uh, woe unto us if we make it harder for you. We want you to be a part of this fellowship. But it comes by way of the good news, that is, the gospel. And the fellowship of the gospel is a particular language. But it's much, much, much more than that. In fact, the construction of the sentence in the original uh, with the use of the word koinonia here twice carries the idea of a dynamic activity in progress. So when Paul says, I'm so grateful to God For you, it's because it wasn't because they were just hanging out together, having coffee together, or even having a meal, but because they were aggressively involved in the progress of the gospel. That's the idea here. Paul, if you'll recall, was in prison. He even alludes to it toward the end of our text. He's in prison, but they weren't cowering in fear. They weren't in hiding. They were out preaching the gospel. Now, he's going to tell us by the end of this chapter, there's, he's questioning, and, so, and they're even questioning one another on some of the motivations for sharing the gospel. He says, I don't care. Christ is being preached. I'm going to rejoice over this. So he's ecstatic over this. And verse 7, by the way, virtually defines what Paul means by fellowship when he talks about that they were involved and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They were partnering with him in this regard. Now, Paul's in prison, but they're not cowering. They're preaching. And this gives Paul, causes Paul's heart to just well up with gratitude. So, Here's a good question as we move into the next uh, point here, Uh, before we do that is, uh, when people think of you, what wells up in their hearts? Are you on their hearts or on their nerves? Do you put a smile on their face? When somebody comes into contact with you, do you put a smile on their face or a pain in their neck? When someone comes into your life, are you an angel, you know, so to speak? Not that any of us are. A blessing or a demon of despair? I mean, you gotta ask yourself these questions. If you're a grateful person, gratefulness has a universal language about it, doesn't it? And grateful people draw others to themselves. Paul had a grateful heart for the Corinthians, he was so, so deeply grateful. And he was grateful to them because of the gospel, its powerful work in their lives, and the fact that it was unpacking itself in their lives. Secondly, he had a confident heart. And this is that verse that many of you have memorized, and rightly so, being confident of this very thing. Uh, The ESV says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Can you think of a more confident verse in all the Bible? There may be some, but not many. No other scripture. in all of the Bible is fulfilled over and over and over again in our era, like this one. It might be the most verifying of all scriptures as to whether or not you are truly saved. And that is this, God's continuous work in your life. Because that's what it's saying, isn't it? God ruthlessly elects those are uh, perfects those he royally elects as someone has said and the question is is he working in your life is there evidence of his work in your life D.A. Carson defines this verse as a definition of a real Christian it's a little bit like what Jesus said Jesus said if you if you continue in my word then are you my disciples indeed have you ever read that He also said, I've come that you may bear fruit and that your fruit should, what? It should remain. Because if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. They've been changed. And that's what this verse is saying. Paul's confidence in the Philippians is twofold. He's confidence in the fruit of the gospel in their lives, which has already been referred to, and in the faithfulness of God until Jesus comes. Because he who began a good work in you, you didn't begin this good work in yourself. God begins the good work. And he's the one who brings it to completion, right? I mean, this is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the one, he, uh, who he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. And every single one of those words in Romans 8 is in the past tense, as if it's, as if it's already happened who God knows in eternity past, he predestines. He marks out their path. Those he predestines, he calls to the gospel. Those he calls to the gospel, he justified. That's the point of salvation. And those he justifies, or justified, past tense, he glorified. Again, it's almost as if it's already happened, though it hasn't. Does that not give you confidence? It should. In a word, what God starts God what? He finishes. Paul Tripp puts it this way. You serve a dissatisfied redeemer who will not turn from his work of grace even when you fail to esteem it and work to resist it. Paul would agree. He has a confident heart. This was the favorite verse of Dawson Trotman. Does anybody know who Dawson Trotman was? I know one guy. I'm looking at a, uh, a navigator. If you've worked with the navigators, you know the history of the navigators. You know the name of Dawson or Dawes Trotman. Died in the middle 50s. This was his favorite verse. Dawson Trotman was a conniver. A conniver. He was, a, he was a man that was unbelievably ungodly. He actually went to a church one day and heard, it was a, a scripture memorization contest. He had he a quick, he, he memorized scripture. Through the process, he gets saved. And then he memorized the verse every day. In his, every day he memorized the scripture. And he witnesses somebody every day. In fact, he would witness to him with this verse. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In fact, he tells a story one day. I, heard, I listened to a cassette tape many years ago of him telling the story of one day he went to bed. And he, as he was closing his eyes, he was exhausted from the day's work. He remembered he hadn't shared the gospel with anybody. He got up begrudgingly out of bed. It was almost midnight. He goes in the car, picks up the first hitchhiker he can find. He goes, look, he, uh, he who began a good work and you will, will bring it to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. And the guy got saved. In fact, it was this very verse that he nearly nearly took a razor blade and cut out of his Bible. Because he picked up another hitchhiker one day, began to witness to this vulgar man. And the man said, well, yeah, you you did this to me last year. The guy had made a profession of faith with Dawes Trotman a year earlier. And Trotman thought, what is wrong? What is wrong? Am I not presenting this correctly? And it it was a result of Philippians 1.6 when he saw in the context around it Paul's love for the Philippians, he realized then that people need more than just to hear how to get out of, get out of hell free because of Jesus. They need to hear how to live for Jesus, and he, does, he developed his discipleship ministry now called the Navigators as a result of this. You know, he nearly died when he was a young person, and he nearly drowned. And when he was just 50 years old, he was, out near Scro- he was out in Scroon Lake on a boat with some other good friends. A wave hit the boat. He fell over with another girl. He held the girl up, and they saved her, and he drowned. Billy Graham did his funeral, and a major magazine wrote his obituary and told about what had happened in his life, and they said, Dawes Trotman was always holding someone up are you confident that your testimony will hold up are you confident like verse 6 are you confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ are you confident of that do you have that kind of confidence Paul had a confident heart and finally and for the balance of our time he had a great heart. Not tender. It was certainly that. But it was great. When I say great, I'm, 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 I'm speaking in terms of largeness. The greatest racehorse in the history of horse racing was Secretariat. I was, I think, in eighth or ninth grade when he won the triple crown. Big red, they called him. He won the triple crown in Record time. In fact, I mean, this horse was so popular, he made the cover of Time magazine. What animal makes the cover of Time magazine? Secretariat did. In the third leg of that race, of that triple crown, the Preakness, he was so far ahead of the nearest horse, by the time he got to the tape, he was 31 lengths ahead. So far ahead, his... His jockey couldn't resist. He had to look back to see how far ahead he was. They couldn't explain this horse until he died. And when he died, they did an autopsy of him. I guess you do that to triple crown winners. A normal thoroughbred has a large heart, nine, sometimes 10 pounds. That's a big heart. It takes a big heart, big machine to run a big, you know, muscly beast like a horse. Secretariat had had a heart that was 22 pounds. 22 pounds. The secret to his victories was the greatness of his heart. And the secret to your walk with God will be the same, spiritually speaking. The greatness of your heart. The Apostle Paul, for all of his theology and depth, was a man with a great heart. Listen to what he said to them. It is right for me to feel this way about you because, look at it, I hold you in my heart. Some of your Bibles say, I have you in my heart. The Greek word could be translated either way, to have and to hold. How's that? It's like a marriage to Paul. He goes on, for God is my witness. Look at this, how I yearn for you, for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The great theologian Bengal put it like this, it is not Paul who lives within Paul, but Jesus Christ, which is why Paul is not moved by the affection of Paul, but by the affection of Jesus Christ. In other words, it has nothing to do whether you are a tender-hearted person, because I'm sure some of you are. This has nothing to do with that. It has to do with whether you have a large heart, and there's room in your heart for God's people. And for those who are not God's, God will use a great heart in great ways. Charles Spurgeon used to say to his students, The heart is the instrument of our vocation. And I would add that Jesus is the one plucking the strings. Paul had a great heart. I hold you in my heart. My heart, my heart has been greatly moved by this passage of Scripture. And God has made a lot of room in my heart for many people and many of you. And I'm just going to tell you, every time I've gone through this list, I'm going to break every etiquette there ever was under the sun here, so bear with me every time i've read this i've broken down every time so if i don't this time know that i have okay right now in little independence iowa my older brother mike Nemmers, is preaching the gospel to a very small handful of people and he's talking about the day that he led his brother pat to christ my brother mike brought me into the fellowship of the gospel. I hold him in my heart. David Graham was my very first pastor, and he modeled for me grace and strength and love for the gospel and for people. I hold him in my heart. My first wife, Nina, Nina, who trusted Jesus Christ as her Savior very shortly after I did, and then forgave me of great, and I mean great, sin against her. And then stood by my side for many years until God said, I'd rather have her by mine. And yes, I still hold her in my heart. To Ellen Obert, She's been gone to heaven for many years, but she used to sit right over here with her husband. When I came to this church as a student, she discipled my first wife. When I came here, when I came here some, you know, a dozen years later to become the pastor, she showed me all of the books that she had her name written in there. She'd been praying for her all these years. This woman had discipled hundreds of women and I held her in my heart still do to Holmes baptist church my very first church i was 28 years old everybody else was 116 and older <laughs> they raised me while i pastored them i hold them in my heart and all of those memories of George and Chris, the the layman's who we had a Bible study in their home. We brought other unsaved people and people started coming to Jesus. I hold you in my heart to all the random people throughout my life when I've had opportunities to preach in different venues. I remember several years ago after preaching at a high school retreat, several kids got saved. I came back to that retreat three years later to meet a gal who got saved three years before, only to find out she'd gone home, led her entire family to Christ, and a church was started out of it. I got to hold that in my heart to just the other day when I'm out in West Des Moines getting a cup of coffee at Starbucks, and the lady, the barista cross, she said, hi, Pastor Numbers, and I went, hi. (laughs) And how do I know you? She goes, I dedicated my life to Jesus Christ under your preaching about 15 years ago. How do I not hold those kinds of things into my heart? These are wonderful things. My heart continues to enlarge. And where do I begin at Sailorville Church? I'll tell you where I began. I began with Judy Thorson, my first secretary. For 13 and a half years, she put up with me, and she virtually mothered me because I didn't have a clue as to how to lead a church with a secretary. I hold you in my heart, Judy, to Phil Betts, who showed me where the button was on the computer to turn it on. I was at his camp a couple of weeks ago and he drove me around to show me all the new things. I was so proud of him. I have him in my heart. To the staff of pastors here now and certainly historically and in a very particular way for Abe and Chuck and Brad who literally held my broken heart in their hands when my sons were not walking with God. I hold you in my heart. And my own family, my daughter Sarah, my daughter Sarah was 14 years old when her mother died. A week after her death, we were at camp. And she heard me weeping in the night. And she wrote me a letter. I still have it. She wrote Psalm 28. God, Dad, God will lighten our darkness. Oh my goodness. And don't just think she has a tender heart. 15 years later, when her brothers were off the chain spiritually, and my wife and I went to a conference. And we came back, and I said, how are the boys? And she was halfway across the kitchen. She threw their duffel bag at me. And she said, rifle through that, Dad. You'll find out how they are. I said, "Okay." I mean, those boys feared her. And they loved her. How could I not hold that in my heart? To my son Nathan, who's right over there. When I was fixing to marry his mother, I said, look, you're really level-headed, so I need you to stick around. He says, I think I'll leave. That's not good. (laughs) He stuck around for six years. And he walked into this cacophony of noise in the Nimmer's house with all of this, the, the loudness and the arguing and the and the hallelujahs and the emotions and the fighting and the yelling and the commotion. And he was <laughs> level-headed. In fact, Nathan, I can remember there was a time where you put out a fire that had to be put out and you were the only one capable of doing it. I hold you in my heart. To my wife, Marilyn, her heart is bigger than any heart I've ever met in my life. She is a spiritual secretariat, (laughs) and yet she found room in that heart for me. Pretty cool. I have her in my heart. Always will. And to this church... When our son, Noah, nearly died from a liver complication and I carried him up from the basement, he must have weighed 120 pounds, took him to the hospital, I thought he's going, God, he's going to go the way of his dad, he's dying. This church piled into a van, the deacons did, the deacons went with us to Omaha, they poured oil over his head, they pled with God for his life, and God heard our prayers. I have you in my heart. To the time when our son John had been arrested. Yes, arrested. I hope that doesn't bother you because he's teaching tonight. (laughs) And I stood before the deacons, broken, submitting to them. I knew my job was on the line. And Joe Funkhauser was weeping, and if Joe cries, everybody cries. And Joe said, you're our pastor. We're behind you. Your son's going to make it. We're going to help you. And it put wind in my sails. Joe Funkhauser, I have you in my heart. And many of you who have had the joy of leading to Jesus, of course I have you in my heart. I always will. And even those who we've had to deal with severely, it's true, I, from time to time I'll even meet somebody who we've had to discipline because of immorality or whatever and I often will hug them. Not because I don't despise their sin but because I have them in my heart. So how is your heart today? How is your heart? Is it a distant heart Is it a hard heart? Some of you have calloused hearts. You've trusted Jesus, but you're far away. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Do you have a grateful heart? Is it a confident one? And is it a great heart and getting greater room for the family of God, even those weird cousins that get in? Some of you have a heavy heart today. Jesus has a word for you. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you. Learn about me. I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And hear me on this. For those of you who say, I don't even know how to describe my heart. God's heart is greater than your heart. And there is always room in his heart for you. If you'll turn and humble your heart, and place your faith in Jesus, you become a part of a great heart in the family of God. Lord, thank you for this opening, heartfelt passage of scripture from our beloved Apostle Paul. And thank you for showing us his heart. God in heaven. Give us grateful hearts, confident hearts, and great and getting greater hearts that can make room for all kinds of people. Lord, even as I pray right now, my heart goes out to my son, Caleb. I'm asking God that you would turn his heart back to you. He doesn't walk with you right now. I pray that he would again, that in your faithfulness you would give him grace. Lord, there are lots of hearts in this room that don't know how to respond to people who are distant from them. Make room in their hearts for those distant ones, as I pray you would in mine.